For the rest of us, we all get to be in on the marriage conference a little bit. And so we, we talked about communication and conflict, and, and uh, Pastor Ben talked a little bit about the, the way that God provides uh, blessings throughout life through marriage. And, and yesterday morning, uh, Tina helped me talk a little bit about intimacy in marriage as well as marriage for a lifetime, and we used advice of people who had been married, married about twice as long as us, and uh, just some really, uh, really great insight that the Lord blessed us with. We were able to share with others, and so it was a great weekend. I even went for a horseback ride for about the first time in 20 years. I might still be recovering from that, but uh, such a great weekend, and this morning you get to be a part of it as we continue the Stronger Together um, Marriage Weekend emphasis. Now, let me make my disclaimer now. Uh, I would not have recalled this, but thanks to um, Eddie Myers, he said, do you realize, he goes, that stronger together, just it, for some reason it kind of stood out to me, where have I heard that before? And he goes, do you, that was Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan. And I said, brother, don't tell me that. And we've got to change the whole series. Uh, that's not why I chose it, just letting you know. I do believe that we can be stronger together, biblically speaking, for the glory of God and so we want to learn how to continue to be stronger together. But today, I want to do something, and I'm telling you, it's, it's for, I believe it's for everyone, every season of life. We've got a lot of students. I know usually they will be in life group this time, but they're not having life group today. So I'm glad we've got uh, some middle school and high school students in here. It doesn't matter what season of life you in. This is for those who are single, married, single again, married again, married and you feel like you're in a sweet season of life, married and you feel like things are falling apart. Single and you're wondering if you're ever going to find the right one. Wherever you are at, the gospel, the redeeming love of Jesus Christ can be pictured in this season of life as you choose today to say, come what may, from this day on, by the grace of God, I'm going to do things God's way. And uh, there's a kind of a big, I've never taken this approach before. I've preached many times out of Ephesians chapter 5, so go ahead and turn there. But I've covered the whole passage on how your marriage, while you're married, it should be picturing the love of Christ for his church. And so we'll get there today, but we're going to see the bigger picture. So yeah, let's stand as we open the Word of God together. Let's read the, toward the end of Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 33. And I'm going to do something a little bit unusual for me. Rather than exegeting one text, we'll look at kind of everything in context of the whole of Scripture on this subject of a portrait of the gospel, how marriage and whatever season of life you're in can show the redeeming love and the, the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this reason, verse 31, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. Many will tell you, even in the secular world, apart from the church, that the greatest need women have is to know that they're loved unconditionally, and men need to be respected no matter what. And that's what Scripture told us to do from the very beginning. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminders that we have of your redeeming love, and that even in our seasons of life, in marriage or the pursuit of marriage, the restoration of marriage, whatever it may be, we can still reflect the gospel. Help us to do so by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. So we're taking a little break from Daniel. We're going to get back to the study of the book of Daniel next week, but we're finishing up again the Stronger Together emphasis. Marriage, a portrait of the gospel. A lot of people come into marriage and they don't even have a clue why they're doing what they're doing. You know, I saw something that proved that we do a lot of things not knowing why we do what we do. This uh, morning, I uh, couldn't help but click on a little news item that asked the question, why does the NFL have a two-minute warning at the end of each half? Well, I, inquiring minds want to know, right? I was like, why do they have a two-minute warning at the end of each half? It's kind of like an extra free timeout. Well, it's because in 1942, when it was initiated, there were not digital clocks all over the stadium. In fact, not that many people would have had a, a, a pocket watch or a, a watch that they could have relied on or been able to know if it was in sync with the official's watch and how much time was left in the game because he was stopping and starting and that sort of thing. And so they thought, you know, we need to kind of let them know when it's almost over, when the half is almost over, when the game is almost over. So they initiated uh, this two-minute warning so the official timekeeping referee would be able to say, let's stop the half, let's tell everybody there's two minutes left. And even when they went back to play, they were still in the dark, right? They, they were thinking, maybe we have 30 seconds, maybe 50. We, we, they didn't know. Today, there's no need for a two-minute warning. There, there's just not because there's, there's clocks all over the stadium. They know how much time's left in the game. But we've always done it that way, and it's hard sometimes to change things, Right. Same can be true in the life of a church. How many churches have died because they say, we've never done it that way before? How many marriages struggle because you just say, well, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep on doing the same thing and hope it works or hope that it gives me different results than what I've seen so far. What's the big deal in Scripture? Why does the Bible make such a big deal of marriage when our world doesn't seem to be making a big deal about marriage anymore. In fact, this is a 2020 Gallup poll throughout the United States of America. It broke my heart to read some of these stats. 72% of Americans in 2020, 72%, almost three quarters of a nation, believe that marriage is an irrelevant context for a sexual relationship. Almost three-fourths of America, it doesn't even matter when it comes to sexual relationship whether somebody's married or not, no big deal. 66%, two-thirds of Americans believe that marriage is irrelevant when it comes to raising children. In fact, you don't even have to identify as a man or a woman. You can, you can identify as, uh, you can embrace gender fluidity or even non-binary. You know, I, I'm not a man or a woman is what they would say. I, I just, I don't identify as anything, and, and, and so it'd be hard to try to match me up or or match me up with as many people as possible. But anyway, they would say marriage is irrelevant to the bringing up of children. And only 38% say that it's very important for couples to get married if they plan to spend the rest of their life together. So even people who would say, we're going to live in a monogamous relationship, one man, one woman for a lifetime, and we might say, oh, that's refreshing to hear. Even of those, the majority say, but it doesn't really matter whether you get married or not. No big deal even if you want to live the rest of your life together. And so there are all kinds of things confusing us today because it's hard to even have the conversation anymore about marriage because it, there's not a Judeo-Christian ethic or a biblical model that the world has, or even this nation that we sometimes refer to as a Christian nation, has embraced. Now, the good news is this. 
As believers, you and I get the opportunity to model something by example. And young people, even in that courtship stage, dating stage, whatever, as you begin to think about, uh, I wonder if I'll find the right one, right, as you begin to pursue that, we'll see that throughout every area, every stage of life, courtship, dating, marriage, you name it, we get to be a portrait of the gospel. And so let's begin where the Bible begins with what I will call the pursuit, right? The pursuit of marriage, if you will. Courtship, or what sometimes today we refer to as dating, pictures the pursuit of Christ for the hearts of his people. Now, when we read this passage in Ephesians a moment ago, we said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. The husband initiates the process, right? One of the biggest trouble people have today in marriage counseling is uh, a man hasn't really left father and mother. Um, that, That man has to say, listen, I'm God's man for my wife, not mama's boy anymore. And so sometimes it's a hard, it's difficult. Now, that doesn't mean he have to, has to sever the heart cords, just sometimes cut the apron strings a little bit. But go and, and be the initiator in the process. It's hard to find men who will initiate that anymore. Keep this in mind. Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10, Jesus has always been in pursuit of a bride for himself, the bride of Christ, the church. And so when we show patience and graciousness in that pursuit, not, not a self-centered pursuit, but, but seeking to glorify God in all that we do, we're picturing the love of Christ. James 4.8 reminds us that there is cooperation expected from both parties here. Now, I believe in divine sovereignty, but I also believe in free will. I believe in the doctrine of of uh, election and predestination, but I believe in the doctrines of responsibility in Scripture. And you say, well, how do you put all that together? I'm not sure because I'm not God. I just know that both are true, and I know that we have a free will and we have an ability to respond. And so in marriage, even all the way back to the pursuit, the courtship, both are engaging their wills in that process. So James 4, 8 says, Draw near to me, God speaking here, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. There's a cooperative effort there, an act of the will. Not that the bride of Christ did anything to save herself. She didn't. She was depraved and could not do anything. We were sinful and needed him to initiate and complete the process. But God still allows us to reject or receive him as Savior and Lord. And so you have this pictured in what we call an Old Testament type Old Testament typology is when you see pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. And so in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham realizes that Isaac, his son, his son of the promise, right, the covenant promise, needs a wife. And so he sends his servant Eliezer. He says, listen, I want you to go back to our homeland. Find him a good girl. Find him a bride, right? And so he goes back and he's, you know, meets Rebecca and he kind of just explains that, hey, I'm, I'm here as a witness, It's not about me. I'm not the one looking for a wife. I'm looking for uh, a a wife for Isaac. And so this pursuit, even in our witnessing, when we tell other people about Jesus, we're showing a picture of how Christ is seeking 
a bride. And so when, you know, some of you played matchmaker in school like I did from time to time, and it really takes the pressure off of your witnessing when you understand it in this perspective. Because some people will say, you know, I never tell other people about Jesus because I fear rejection. How do I overcome the fear of rejection when I tell people about Jesus? And I usually respond, well, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. Now, I wonder how many of you young ladies, you don't have to raise your hand or, or tell on any of your friends right now, but have ever had a friend who liked a guy and they wanted to know what that guy thought, so you were the one that had to go find out what that guy thought about him. You know what I'm saying? Again, you don't have to raise your hand, but you kind of know where I'm going. Some of them are laughing. I, there were friends of mine, some dudes that would be like, hey, I really like that girl, and I know that y'all are friends. Can you find out from her if she's interested in me? And that never made me nervous whatsoever. Why? Because I wasn't the one being rejected. If she said, no, he's a loser, then I went, Pfft. I went back to him and said, man, she thinks you're a loser. That, that did, they weren't rejecting me. They were rejecting my friend. Now, obviously, it breaks my heart when people reject the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're called to be Eliezer's. God is looking for a bride for his son, and he has sent us into the world as his witnesses because Jesus is in pursuit of a bride. That bride is the church, and he wants as many people to be a part of the church as possibly would ever respond to the gospel. See, even if you are separated, divorced, recovering or healing from broken hearts, broken relationships, giving up on the dating game, the whole pursuit process you need to put under the authority of Christ. Look what happened in John chapter 4 when Jesus met the woman at the well. And he comes and he says, listen, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, well, you said that right. He said, actually, you, you, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And you can kind of cue the Johnny Lee country song from back in the 80s, looking for love in all the wrong places, and she was not pursuing the right things. But when you understand that Jesus is in pursuit of a bride, and you see everything that you're going through life in, hey, God wants me to be in right relationship with him as the bride of Christ, then all the other pursuits can become a righteous picture of that. Secondly, you move from the pursuit, and some of you that are married today say, man, I am so glad I'm past those pursuit days, especially we see young men chasing after young ladies. I used to say it's kind of like a dog that used to chase the garbage truck in front of my house. I remember one time watching the, uh, our dog named Rocky. He was running down the hill in front of the house chasing, it might have been the UPS truck, running wide open and hit the neighbor's mailbox post, knocked him silly. And I thought, why do you put yourself through that? You, what would you do with the UPS truck if you caught it? What were you going to do with it? And I thought, man, it's just like young men chasing young ladies around. They ain't even thought through what it's going to cost or where it's going to take them, right? Well, hopefully it will lead for someone this next phase, the proposal. The proposal, the day that you get ready to pop the question, right? Betrothal, or what today we might refer to as engagement, illustrates it's a picture of saying yes to Jesus who has propositioned us with a gospel saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. That's why we talk about being, uh, not being unequally yoked with unbeliever and sometimes apply that in, into dating and marriage is because we're to yoke with Christ as the bride of Christ. Whosoever will, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, whosoever will, may come and drink freely of the water of life. He gives an invitation and he's 
asking us to say yes to that invitation. Does that mean that, again, it's, it, it, there's not a part of us that's responsible, able to respond? Of course not. We get to say yes or we get to say no to the invitation that the Lord Jesus Christ gives, to the proposal that he gives. Jeremiah 29, 13, though, says, Seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. When you go to that great romantic song in the Scriptures, the Song of Solomon, you get to chapter 3, and this is chapter about how she's saying, man, it's time. I'm in pursuit. I'm ready for him to be in my life, the one who has pursued me. I'm ready to find him. And so I didn't realize probably all that I was picturing. Some of you kind of know my story. is when I acted like I was lost in the outskirts of Madison, Georgia, ended up over at Hard Labor Creek State Park in Rutledge, and didn't tell Tina until after I proposed to her that that was where I had trusted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior there at Camp Rutledge. Uh, Brother Rick, that was a Sarepta Baptist Association church camp where I got saved. And so I went back and, and just kind of told her uh, that I wanted to make the second most important decision where I made the first most important decision, and I asked her to be my wife. But the picture there is now in my mind that where I said yes to Jesus is where my wife said yes to me, and it pictures the same gospel that saved me when I was 10 years old. Now, yes, it's okay to plan and invest men to buy the rig, so to speak, you know, to, to plan. In, in fact, today, I would argue, because I've got newlywed sitting right in front of me right here, my daughter, my son-in-law, son-in-love, right? Um, I would argue that young men are being more clever and investing more than ever in how they propose and where they propose. Man, it becomes a big deal. But you know, that also pictures the gospel. The church should be willing to invest in. Sometimes we get worried about how much money we're spending on this, that, or the other. We should be willing to invest in worship. We should be willing to invest in special events, evangelistic events, you name it, where we're going to bring people to a place where we're going to pop the question for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to make a big deal out of that in our marriages, we need to make a big deal of that in the gospel and in our ministries within the church. So the pro proposal, let me say one other thing about the proposal. The word betrothal used often in scripture is more serious than even our word engagement today in the Western world. Because you can break an engagement, you can walk away, and most people will say, well, at least you didn't get married yet. Betrothal was as serious as the actual wedding day in the scriptures. Once you were betrothed, once you had asked the question and they had said yes and you were betrothed, you would have to file for divorce to break the engagement. It was that serious. Remember when Joseph considered to put Mary away secretly before they were married, after they were betrothed, because there was the question of faithfulness until the angel came and explained the virgin birth and that the, the child was of the Holy Spirit. And so keep in mind, betrothal was a big deal when we say it's a picture of us saying yes to Jesus. In other words, when you are a believer, when you've said yes to Jesus, you've now been given a home in heaven and eternity with Christ has been prepared for you. Third, the preparation. What preparations have to be made after you get engaged? A lot. That's why when you might try to talk your children or your grandchildren out of, hey, don't get engaged too soon, they will say something like this. 
they will say, we need time to prepare the wedding, right? We need, we got a lot of plans to put in place, and so we need to propose and we need to make plans. What has Jesus been doing ever since we said yes to him? What has he been doing ever since he came and lived and died and rose again? In John chapter 14, he told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, listen, you just struck jackpot when you married me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again. There's going to be a wedding day, and I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is preparing heaven for his bride. He is preparing his bride for heaven, and he is preparing a grand wedding day preparing heaven for his bride. What has he been doing all these years? How wonderful is heaven going to be if he spoke the world into existence in six days? What's the new heaven and the new earth going to be like one day? Behold, I make all things new is what he's going to say in Revelation chapter 20, verse uh, 21 and verse 5, when that new heaven and that new earth, the new Jerusalem are all ready to come together. And so what are we to picture even now back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her. He's preparing a bride for heaven, right? With the washing of the water by the word, he did this to present the church to himself when on that grand wedding day, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. So we have the wonderful opportunity in this life to model the fact that Jesus is preparing heaven for a bride, a bride for heaven, and he's preparing for a grand wedding day. So in all of those, and listen, I, we spent, and I know Karis worked a lot harder at it than, than, uh, than, than I did, and she's sitting in here, but spent a year preparing for a wedding day. Is it that big a deal? Yes, it's that big a deal. Second most important decision you'll ever make in your life. What's the most important when you give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the wedding day Jesus is planning for us? And so the preparations are being made for this wedding day. When does it all come together? Number four, we'll call that the pinnacle. Everything about the wedding day should reflect Christ's glorious return. Everything about the wedding day should reflect Christ's glorious return. Now, when we were studying the prophetic passages in Daniel about the return of Christ, and remember the image of the beast and how one day Jesus is going to crush the feet of that beast and, and, and the, the revived Roman or Babylonian empire, the kingdoms of this world will come down. All of that was seen also in Revelation chapter 19, but what set that up? What preceded all that? Turn to Revelation chapter 19 in your Bibles for a minute. We see this consummation of the ages, it says, after this I heard in verse 1, something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious, this revived rebellion that was against him. He refers to as the prostitute who corrupted the earth and her, with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that were on her hands. A second time they said, hallelujah, 
her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the 24 living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Listen, wedding ceremonies should have a time of exaltation where Jesus Christ is being lifted high. The whole service should do that, but always take time to glorify him. Then I heard something, verse six, like a loud voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters. And like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because the Lord God, the almighty reigns, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come. What's happening here in heaven? It's a wedding day. The bride of Christ is in the presence of the bridegroom. And this is a grand wedding day that has been prepared. Now the pinnacle is when this wedding day takes place. The bride of Christ has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints, all that they were able to do in Christ because of the grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And I fell at his feet to worship him, the messenger, but he said, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers and sisters who firmly hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The bride is ready in the bridal chamber, right? What happens next? Verse 11, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse and its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like fiery flame and many crowns were on his head on a wedding day. Well, listen, if, if you eloped, you're still married, by the way. <laughs> if you say, well, hey, we just went down to the justice of the peace and made it a quick thing. As soon as we, here's what I used to hear years ago. As soon as we got old enough, we went to South Carolina and got married. Because you could get married younger then. And listen, you're just as married as any of the rest of us. But as we teach the next generation to prepare for that wedding day, help them to picture that when that groom steps out, He is picturing Jesus Christ stepping out on the clouds of glory to call his bride into his presence. When that bride comes forth on that wedding day, it is a picture of the church coming before the bridegroom. The day that we had prepared for, the day that we had longed for, is all pictured, the pinnacle of everything coming together for the glory of God. That week, the wedding week, the week of anticipation, enjoy that as much as you possibly can. Family coming in, the decorating of the banquet halls, the bridesmaids hanging out, the groomsmen enjoying one another's company, her getting dressed for the marriage, him getting dressed for the wedding, all of that pictures that, hey, we've come to the pinnacle. It's the church getting ready for a grand wedding day. And now we're ready to stand in the presence of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Song of Solomon, you have to be careful here. It's rated R, half of the book, right? And so I know that I say that sometimes and there are some people that will read their Bible for the first time in a long time. This is the wedding day. The man is speaking in Song of Solomon, verse two, like a lily among the thorns, 
so was my darling among the young women. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young, this is the woman speaking now, my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall and he looked on me with love to King James. His banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apricots. Some of you are going, raisins, that's, that's sick, but it was sweet to the Jewish audience. And that's all I will say. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. And then this charge is made to the young women, the, the ones who are not married yet of Jerusalem. It's, she's saying, young women, my friends, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. What is she saying? She was saying, I waited till my wedding day, and it's going to be a grand wedding day, a grand celebration. And you might say, well, but, well, we didn't do things God's way. Listen, the gospel, the good news is still that his redeeming love can place you today in right standing with him because whatever sin you might say I'm guilty of or am currently guilty of or the problems I'm causing my spouse today or my parents or my children, today all that can be redeemed for his glory. That's what it pictures, though. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God, Israel, Christ, and the church Marriage has always been a portrait of the gospel. And finally, we move to number five. Now, there, there was always a part of me because I didn't get all this as a teenager, by the way. I wish I had understood all this back in the day. If I had, I remember being a teenage boy, and I probably speak on behalf of all teenage boys everywhere in the church when I say this, but I remember being a teenage boy and this thought crossing my mind. Um, Lord, I believe you're coming back one day. Oh, I know heaven's going to be awesome, but please don't come back before I get married. Remember having that thought. You know why we have that thought? Because we can't imagine the fact that heaven fulfills every desire you could ever imagine, mind, body, soul, spirit, that there is nothing more perfect than being in the presence of our Lord in heaven. And because we can't grasp that, we say things like, boy, I hope you don't come back before I get married. Now, some of you are like, I've been married long enough. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we're ready to go, right? What are we looking for? Number five, the promised land. In the Old Testament, it was referring to making it back to Palestine, right? Getting out of Egypt and through the wanderings and back into the homeland, back into the promised land. And the promised land became an allegory in the Old Testament for heaven and the New Testament to where we're saying, one day I'm going to stand with him on those streets of gold. Uh, one day I want to make it to the promised land. The promised land is pictured in our marriage because marriage is a covenant relationship for the fulfillment of sacred vows. Going back to what we looked at to begin with, verses 31, this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. This is a little taste of heaven on earth. The mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Christ fulfilling his vows to the church to sum up each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. They're to maintain the vows of love and respect they made on that wedding day, and it becomes a picture of promises being fulfilled. And so marriage is not perfect. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We need God's grace day in and day out, but when we really choose to say, today, 
I want my heart to be right with God, and I want to be what God has called me to be for my spouse, then God allows us to have little tastes of heaven, promises fulfilled on earth. That's why we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we to wait until heaven comes before we start doing his will? No, I'm telling you, you get to taste a little bit of heaven on earth when you do things God's way. You might say, well, pastor, and this is what bothers me sometimes, especially I remember when I was a youth pastor talking to teenagers, people would kind of make the statement, well, I've already blown it. I can't do things God's way because Jesus went to the cross for your sin and for my sin. And the pastor needs as much grace as anybody in here because Jesus went to a cross for your sin and for my sin. We can all today say, God, take where I am right now and redeem it for your glory. But I'm single. God redeemed singlehood for your glory. I'm married. Redeem this marriage for your glory. I'm single again. God, redeem it. Let me do things your way. I'm married again. God, let this marriage glorify you. Listen, that's what the cross, that pictures the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redeeming love of Christ for his church. And so I want to challenge you today. Commit to be that picture. Would you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. There may be someone here this morning that would say, I would not be part of the bride of Christ if that wedding day were today. And so where I sit, the best way I know how, I'm believing that Jesus died for me. He died for my sin. I'm believing that he rose from the grave. I believe his spirit is convicting me right now to put my faith and my trust in him. So the best way I know how, I choose to trust Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, my best friend. The best way I know how, I'm responding to the bridegroom with a yes. And I'm thanking him for the blood that cleanses me from all unrighteousness. With no one looking around, I just wonder if somebody would say, Pastor Robbie, that's the prayer of my heart. Today I'm saying yes to Jesus. Nobody looking around but me, just hold up a hand and say, that's the prayer of my heart. I'm trusting in Jesus today. I'm giving my life to him. I'm saying yes to Jesus. Anybody at all, just hold it up till I see it. Amen. Anybody here this morning would say, where I'm at in life, listen, it may be a difficult season that you're in, but you say, the way I walk through and navigate these waters, I want it to show the redeeming love of Christ. I want it to be a picture of the gospel. And I want to commit my marriage or even my singlehood where I'm at today. I want to commit it to him. Just raise your hand. Just say, that's where I'm at. I just give it all to him. God, use it. Use us. Use me to be a portrait of the gospel. So I think most of us can commit to that today. And Father, we thank you for your redeeming love that draws us by your grace into your presence and puts a new song in our mouth that could be sung at a grand wedding day. Lord, thank you for that love, that redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask you to stand this morning. We're going to sing a song.